Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. But first, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the latest issue of Shell Magazine that's getting ready to be released. Our feature is Anne Bradbury, the CEO of American Exploration and Production Council. This is a great group that we caught up with that actually is located in Washington, D.C. It's a group that really does help our elected officials understand better energy and energy policy. And right about now, we really need a lot of those organizations to help our elected officials start making better energy regulations to help with these crazy gas prices that we're dealing with. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest today, Robert Rabier. Robert, welcome to this week's In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I understand that you are having your back from surgery. I'm glad to see you are back and ready to hit the road with talking about oil and gas. And, you know, there's a new Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that just passed. And that's what I want to talk to you about for this show. So uh, I'm glad you're doing well. Welcome back to the oil patch and let's get started. You know, um, Robert, Senator Joe Manchin did a 180 degree about face in agreeing to slim down a version of President Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill, which increased corporate taxes, provided tax credit, grants and incentives for politically correct green energy technologies, such as wind, solar and electric vehicles, and seek to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, among other new deals and climate change initiatives basically speaking to the democratic base that is uh, continuously supporting um, financially the Democrat party and um, their Green New Deal uh, type of programs. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, let's discuss the Inflation Reduction Acts of 2022. Is that really the right name for this bill that passed? Yeah, it's been, there's been a lot of debate about that, whether this really impacts inflation and how quickly it impacts inflation. Um, A lot of people have characterized this really as a climate change bill, but it has a lot of stuff in there. I mean, you know, if if they can cap uh, prescription drug prices and, and, you know, there are consequences of doing that, they may be able to help with inflation a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to see that the energy provisions will necessarily help inflation, certainly not in the short term. Um, you know, most of this stuff, a lot of these things don't even go into effect for, for several years. So, uh, you know, it, it, that may not be the correct act, but I think with inflation running as high as it is, um, I think there's a, a little bit of politics going into the name there. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit later on in the show, because I'm going to cite an economist that's talking about this is really not such a great idea. But some of the, the tax credits that are in there are clean energy sources. There's taxes for electric vehicles. Uh, funds for clean heavy duty vehicles. Um, And I want to kind of go through them because there's a lot in here. Um, Funds to help uh, US UP electrify uh, the critical minerals and then methane admission reduction program, which is a big one for the oil and gas companies as well. 
Um, that one specifically, API, are you familiar with the API released a statement, uh, which is of course the American Petroleum Institute, one of the largest uh, organizations that really tend to lobby for oil and gas companies. And they're discussing that this is really um, not a good investment, even though they acknowledge, well, let me just read it to you. It says, while the Inflation Reduction Act takes important steps towards new oil and gas leasing and investments in carbon capture and storage, it falls short of addressing America's long-term energy needs and further discourages needed investment in oil and gas. Um, they also are saying that coal, um, the goal to addressing climate change as evident in policies that they have been supporting, and they do acknowledge that uh, climate change is real. However, this bill specifically falls very short of what they need for the oil and gas association. So what do you say to, the, to API and the 60 other associations that involve natural gas uh, and crude um, that they represent and lobby for is this bill going to help or hurt the oil and gas associations and the oil and gas production here in, in North America? So I think it's a mixed bag. I think they got part of what they want. Um, you know, I've heard statements from ExxonMobil CEO saying, you know, this is a good start. Um, I think what they want more than anything is certainty. I think they know that uh, legislation is coming and, and they're going to get some sort of punitive measures when it comes to uh, oil and gas and trying to push in the direction of renewables, but they want to, they want to have certainty. They want to have, uh, they want to know what the ground rules are. And I think what we'll see is it, the larger oil and gas companies are going to be able to cope with these changes a lot better than the smaller oil and gas companies. Um, you know, there's going to be uh, taxes on, on uh, methane emissions. The, oil, mm -hmm. the big oil and gas companies will be better equipped to handle that. Uh, one of the provisions was that any federal lands that are opened up to renewable development, like offshore wind, uh, have to also be opened up to development for uh, offshore oil. And again, it's the big oil and gas companies that will be able to take advantage of that, not so much the smaller producers. I think the smaller producers will potentially get hurt here. And um, so, um, you know, I, I think some of the bigger oil and gas companies have come out in support. I think they'd rather see nothing happen, but given what did happen, I think they're they're, they're okay, um, but if I was a smaller oil and gas producer, I'd be a little more worried about this. Right, well, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, which is one of our partners, um, is, is not happy with it. They are discussing how it's gonna typically fall on the back of the little oil and gas. And I think what people really don't realize is how important the small oil and gas producers are as well. It kind of levels the playing field so we're not left with maybe 10 large oil and gas companies on the planet. Um, and this is, I, I do believe in, when we talk about the environment, there is a price to pay for doing um, work, especially if it's in the oil and gas industry. So maybe it's just par for the course, but at the same time, this is definitely going to fall on the backs of the smaller independent oil and gas producers. And uh, there's a lot more of them than there are of the majors. So I want to try to drill down into that a little bit later on the show, but Let's talk about uh, Senator Manchin. Um, the whole reason why he switched gears was because he wanted to see the infrastructure and pipelines uh, be a little smoother. Now, we all remember that uh, President Biden, day one, came in, filed an executive order, basically just killing the uh, Keystone Pipeline. 
Um, is this bill really going to get Joe, Senator Manchin what he wants in the uh, pipeline permitting reform as he thought so? Well, so I've read through the bill. I've looked. So it, it said that this will streamline the permitting of the mountain is a mountain valley pipeline that Joe Manchin's behind. I actually did a keyword search and that pipeline doesn't appear in the bill that I saw. Um, but I read a little bit more and it said um, there are promises in there that the streamlining process, that the, pipe, the permitting process will be streamlined down the road. Now, I don't really know what that means. I don't know the implications of that. I do know that we've got a pipeline process. It's problematic in the U.S. and it is very difficult to build pipelines. Years and years and years, yes. And and the problem is, you know, again, the oil and gas companies they need certainty. They need they need a certain framework if they're going to do projects that you know take five to ten years to complete. Because you know you had Obama come in and and uh, and cancel the Keystone Pipeline. You had uh, Trump come in and put it back on, and then. Biden canceled it again. Well, a company cannot do business in that way. And so to the extent that they can put more certainty around that permitting process, that's a good thing. Now, whether this bill gets that done or whether this was more of a fig leaf for Manchin to be able to say, okay, well, I got what I wanted. Um, I don't I don't know that the bill itself does this. I, I My understanding is there are some assurances that this will happen down the road. Well, there were 47 Democrat senators that voted against even the beginning of the this policy, citing that it is um, the 47, uh, the Senate voted 50 to 47 to approve a Congressional Review Act resolution sponsored by Senator Dan Sullivan that would undo the Biden administration's regulatory changes to the National Environment Policy Act. So 47 of Joe Manchin's fellow Democrat senators are already voting against this. So, um, you know, with pipelines truly being so important and him saying he's signing on, and yet we're seeing 47 senators directly conflicting with wanting to see that any kind of permitting uh, pipeline reform is, is actually insured. I'm trying to figure out if he really um, got what he, if this is really gonna go through uh, or not. And it doesn't seem with so many senators uh, opposing the reform that they're going to get anywhere with what we just signed into law as far as this Inflation Reduction Act. I'm skeptical on that as well. Um, I think if he didn't get it in the bill, but rather got assurances, I think it's exactly right. So Robert, when we get back from break, I want to talk about there's a lot of discussion on refinery capacity and with the pipelines, hopefully in this infrastructure reduction bill going through, uh, if it doesn't go through and these Democratic, 47 Democrat senators get their way, how much harder is it going to be for us to catch up with already a depleting refinery amount in which uh, we were, refineries are already coming off of um, line and we're not seeing any new built. I want to try to get into that discussion. You guys, have a quick break. You're listening to In the World Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The annual AAPA Conference and Expo is coming up in Orlando, Florida, October 16th through the 19th, as seaport leaders and marine professionals will gather for networking, technical, and policy sessions. As the seaport's main event of the year, the AAPA Conference and Expo will provide access to the industry's top decision makers, professionals, and experts. If you or your company are interested in sponsoring this year's event, contact Kevin Traver at ktraver at aapaports.org. 
Ford. That's Traver at aapaports.org. Remember this name, Oil Field Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oil field equipment needs. Oil Field Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oil field parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three and six person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side owner study. We're back. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. My guest is Robert Rapier, who is with a senior contributor for Forbes magazine. Robert, before the break, we were discussing, of course, the newly approved Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Some of the pipelines that persuaded Senator Manchin to change gears and to vote for this bill was Mountain Valley Pipeline, Great Lakes Tunnel, and Line 5. Um, One of the producers is Enbridge, one of the large midstream companies that's handling line five. Some of the concerns have been how little we have in the way of refineries. Um, And then to complicate matters, if this isn't passed through, pipelines are not streamlined to some degree. Um, We're gonna have a really bad, bad energy problem with it just being able to get to market. Can you talk to me a little bit about your vision of what you see if this thing, the 47 senators, Democratic senators that are already siding against this bill uh, using the Napa agency, tell me what is the problem if they do not streamline the pipeline situation and how bad does it continue to get for refineries? So you have to think about it from the perspective of the refiner. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, we're short on refining capacity, and yet refiners are making so much money. Why aren't they investing in, uh, in more refining capacity? Well, they don't have a crystal ball. They're looking out and they're trying to say, what are the conditions going to be like down the road? And if they can't see that supplies are going to be steady and the market's going to be good, if they see the government trying to force everyone into electric vehicles, there's no good reason for them to invest. And so what happens is if they don't invest and we don't all migrate to electric vehicles fast enough, then suddenly we have product shortfall. And that's what we've had over the past year. We've had a product shortfall, especially after Putin invaded uh, or Russia invaded Ukraine and we stopped importing Russian products, the refineries couldn't, they couldn't make up the difference. And so that's why since February, we saw gasoline prices skyrocket for a while. They're coming, they're coming back down now, but um, you know, the, what happened was the refiners simply couldn't make up the difference. And so now you had all these people second guessing them. 
well, why weren't you investing more in capacity? Well, because there's been a hostile environment for refiners and looking forward, the legislation and so forth that's being passed is not good for them. So they're saying, why would I invest a billion dollars to upgrade my refinery? That's going to take, you know, 10, 15 years to pay out. And the government seems intent on moving us off of oil and gas. So I'm not going to spend a billion dollars. So they, they want more certainty around supply and around their markets. And this is why you see underinvestment in the refining sector right now. I want to switch gears because one of the areas that you focus on is financial in stocks, bonds, and, and that type of arena. Um, I was reading uh, a lot of information is coming out from economists that are really not liking the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, more because they are citing that we need to reduce inflation immediately. However, they first cite that it is a very uh, inappropriate name because it's not going to do that. It is basically philosophically fraud in the term of describing an unpurposeful misdirection, and it may uh, not actually achieve what it's designed to do. Um, and in it, um, the, some of the economists, which of course I will um, discuss here shortly, have said that the uh, $739 billion in, in, um, Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 um, does not a lot of good for the inflation uh, or taking um, advantage of that. First of all, what are your thoughts on that? And tell me, where are the most problematic areas you see in imbalancement? Is it supply, demand? Is it going to be um, labor shortages, supply chains? I mean, is this bill covering all of these things that we're currently seeing in, due to the inflation problem that we're having? So th there are often unintended consequences, and I talk about these a lot. And I think people who don't do not understand how the energy sector works and how energy is priced very often pass laws that hurt. And, and I, I'll go back to, the, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Before that happened, I said, what is likely to happen is we're going to shut off Russian imports. The price is going to skyrocket. Russia's still going to be able to sell that product, and they're going to make more money selling less product. And that is exactly that what happened. happened. That's that exactly. Is exactly what happened. And so that's an unintended consequence. We, we helped Russia make more money because we shut off the Russian imports. And then that cost American consumers a lot. Now, I'm not saying whether that was the right or the wrong move, but that was an unintended consequence. But it was, if you understand how oil and gas are priced, it was, it was pretty obvious and pretty straightforward. So there's the thing. If, if you, you know, if we pass laws, and, and, and one thing this law, this bill does, it's punitive for oil and gas for the most part and incentivizes wind, solar, electric vehicles. Now, if the migration to electric vehicles happens quickly and uh, you know everybody embraces this, maybe you get away with it. But if we underinvest in oil and gas and the supply is short, uh, we'll get a situation like we have now again. We'll, we'll you know, five years from now, uh, you know, I, I've heard people say oil is going to go in this terminal decline for, for 15 or 20 years. I've, I've heard that consistently. And uh, what happens is the oil companies look, they see, okay, you know, the, the, the climate is against us right now. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're punishing us, they're investing in renewables. 
we're going to slow down on our investments because we may not get them back. And then a few years later, lo and behold, we're still growing oil and gas consumption. And now we don't have enough production and prices skyrocket. And we see that over and over and over again. Robert, let's take a break because when we come back, I want to break down all the financial parts of this act as well. We've got to take a quick break and listen to on the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers invites you to their annual conference on September 14th and 15th at the Hotel Drover in Fort Worth, Texas. The event will feature author and energy expert Alex Epstein during the industry luncheon on September 15th. It's the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual conference, September 14th and 15th in Fort Worth, Texas. For tickets and hotel reservation information, go to texasalliance.org. That's texasalliance.org. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to in the Wall Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior uh, correspondent contributor for Forbes magazine. Robert, we're discussing today the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that just passed and will be signed into law, no doubt, by President Biden. This was a version of the Build Back Better toned down bill that they had hoped to get through. Um, but I want to talk about the 430. $3 billion of proposed government spending that is probably going to create immediate, immediate uh, inflation pressures um, by, uh, they believe, boosting demand, which would supply side, uh, which would increase supply side tax hikes, would also contra- constrain supply by discouraging investment, draining into private um, sectors. And then there's also um, a lot of goodies in here for like, you mentioned earlier, prescription drugs. Um, There's also things in here pertaining to the climate. We talked about how everyone, there's tax credits for EVs, which is electric vehicles. And you said earlier that the the losers are the oil and gas uh, industry. Winners are going to be the American people. If so, tell me how. And then um, specifically, you just you were asking about or asking me to ask, or let's discuss the stock buybacks and that specific area. So I want you to try to explain to me, what is the American people, the benefit to them in here? They, I, I'm understanding oil and gas prices are probably going to continue to stay high. I don't think this addresses inflation at all in the sense of giving the American consumer um, any kind of relief. So where, what can somebody expect who has heard this and has no idea how this is going to affect them? Let's start taking it piece by piece of what they can expect to see. Okay. So in, I just wrote a Forbes article on this and I identified four categories of winners. I said the wind and solar companies are going to get a lot more money. They're winners. 
utilities that are transitioning toward renewable energy are going to be winners because they're going to get more money uh, funneled to them. Electric vehicle companies, and then companies that extract and process materials like lithium. That's four categories. There are going to be other winners in there, but that's four categories all having to do with renewable energy that are going to win. Um, I said within the oil and gas industry, the benefits skew toward the largest companies that can afford to invest in some of these uh, technologies. Uh, there's going to be money going into carbon capture, which the oil and gas industry likes, because you know if we're going to capture carbon and put it in the ground, it's very expensive. The oil and gas industry is, is appreciative of the, uh, of the funds that are going there. I said losers, one of the biggest losers is going to be companies that have relied on stock buybacks. And just to, just to understand what this is, a company that, is, that, that needs capital can issue stock and they sell parts of their company. Conversely, a company that has a lot of money, they can buy some of that stock back. If I, if I have a company and I feel like my stock is undervalued, I can use some of my excess funds to buy that stock back. Now, that's, that's, common, that's common business. That's been going on forever. And yet it's criticized for reasons I don't know. I mean, Apple is a company that uses a lot of stock buybacks and I, there's, there's nothing at all wrong with that. And so this bill, puts an extra tax, a 1% tax on stock buybacks. Now, that's a disincentive then for companies to buy back their own stock, but um, you know that, that suggests there's something wrong with stock buybacks. If, you can, if a company can issue stock, they should be able to buy it back. If, they, you know, if I issue stock at $100 a share and it falls to 50, I should be able to buy my stock back without paying a penalty to do that. And um, so that's one part I don't like about the bill. I, I think companies ought to be able to buy their stock back if they make a financial decision that, hey, my stock is undervalued and I've got excess cash and I'm going to put it into buying that stock back. And so that provision I do not like. Now, whether the American people ultimately will win or lose over this bill, I, I think it's, you know, if, if it does curb carbon emissions, I think, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a good thing. I think our carbon emissions rising unabated is, is a problem. And, uh, um, you know, but the biggest issue is, and I hate to rain on people's parade, but I say this again and again, we, the United States is not the global driver of carbon emissions. Um, you know, it's Asia Pacific. Our, our carbon emissions have been relatively flat for about 30 years. Um, so, it is true that the United States historically has put more carbon in the atmosphere than anyone, but the future is going to be Asia Pacific. And so if we don't rein in Asia Pacific's emissions, it doesn't matter what we do at all. Um, unless we can figure out some way to suck the carbon out of the air, we really need to be aimed at, you know, Asia Pacific emits more than double the total emissions of the United States and the EU put right. together. Right. And they're the ones that are usually out of the discussion of wanting or doing anything really geared at trying to reduce this. Right. Robert, so I, I don't mean we should we should do everything we can, but but we have to be realistic here. This does not solve the problem. Right. It only just continues the, the, the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to get back on this topic as well as talk a little bit about Wall Street and how they're responding. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. And we'll be right back. we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Raper, who is a senior contributor for Forbes magazine. Robert, before the break, you were telling us who are the winner and the losers 
of, of course, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And you listed four major winners, uh, solar, wind, utilities, EVs, and lithium. Now, in self-disclosing, I do happen to have stocks pertaining to lithium, and I kind of am partial to lithium. I like that. <laughs> we do need critical minerals. However, solar, wind, utilities, and EVs are all byproducts, and all um, we need oil and gas to produce them as well. So um, does this mean when they're winners, because they're getting a lot of rebates and they're getting a lot of incentives from the government, isn't the cost of doing business going to be higher for them as well, just because they're going to have to pay um, the energy companies to produce everything that they produce is made as a byproduct of it. So um, where does that kind of fit in with them or, or does it at all? And then I also want to ask you a little bit about how Wall Street is reacting to this new bill as well. So, uh, yeah, the lithium, for instance, uh, there's been tremendous inflation in the lithium sector. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is just the supply chain disruptions from COVID. But the other is lithium demand. And this is being incentivized by the government. But lithium demand is growing leaps and bounds. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I just looked up. I, I used to own stock in Albemarle, which uh, they, they are a major producer of lithium. Uh, that stock is up nearly 40% in a month. So, uh, you know, that's a, that, one, that's a function of July and July to now has been a very, very good month uh, for stocks overall. But energy stocks in particular have done very, very well over, you know, over the past six weeks or so. Um, in the midst of a bear market, we don't know, is this the end of the bear market or is this just a bear market bounce? But, um, you know, I, 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 the first six months of the year was pretty bad. The last six weeks, I've made up nearly everything I lost in the first six months, first six months of the year in the last six weeks. And, um, you know, those energy companies have done very well. So I think the energy stocks are reacting uh, positively toward the, you know, the passage of the bill. Um, and I, I don't know who, you know, even, you know, even though the oil companies, you know, some of them may not fare as well, they're, they've done very well. I mean, uh, you know, I just checked ConocoPhillips. It's up, uh, you know, in the past month, it's up 18%. You know, that's the largest pure oil and gas producer. Um, so, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of losers across the energy sector. The energy sector has been the top performing sector in the S&P 500 this year, but, um, you know, it had pulled back some in the, in the second quarter, but now, you know, it's, it's on a tear again. What about Wall Street? Since we're talking about terror, financial, Wall Street seems to be liking the climate bill, and they seem to be betting on both the energy, both green energy and fossil fuels as well. They're not, um, you know, they, they seem to be financing both. I guess maybe some of the environmentalists that were hoping to shut down the oil and gas exploration are, are disappointed in the sense that they are still being funded in many ways, rather it's through new investments, capital investments, um, they're continuing to grow. And so is the uh, green energy space, which sphere, which isn't it always, uh, a lot of people say that they really need to be growing at the same time because we're not ready to get off one or the other. So does Wall Street maybe have something here that they're like, hey, we can make money in both. And that's exactly what we're planning on doing. What are your thoughts on Wall Street and their reaction to the bill? So Wall Street is like the oil industry. They like certainty. They like uh, they, the more uncertainty, the more volatility. And so now you've got this great big bill that puts a more um, certain framework around, you know, the oil and gas industry, around renewables, 
Uh, you know, you can see where the money is going to flow. Um, Wall Street will get under those, you know, when, when money's raining on a sector, Wall Street will move in and, and uh, invest more money in that sector because it's obviously going to do well if we're funneling money into that sector. But likewise, um, oil is a lot of money going forward. Even, even as we try to transition off, uh, we're still going to demand oil for a long time. And that's, uh, you know, that's a point I've made again and again, that we're, we're just not at a point where you're going to see this rapid decline in oil consumption. And so uh, Wall Street is going to continue to invest. You know, it would be nice if maybe some of our elected officials were a little bit more clear on this discussion, as opposed to all the rhetoric that goes out, how we've got to get off of oil right now. Um, it causes a lot of tension and um, worry, I think, for people who really don't understand this isn't going to go away anytime soon. But I want to switch gears, Robert, and talk a little bit about world oil issues. Uh, China's data showed a drop in oil prices and consumption. I'm sure a lot had to do with post-COVID on, on, uh, uh, with them as well. How um, And they have been the largest purchaser of, of course, um, energy. So where do you see um, China ending up and, of course, the energy sector due to China's lack of demand for energy and, of course, oil and uh, natural gas? Yeah, I think that's purely a function of COVID. They've had some COVID shutdowns over there. But if you look, um, you know, you look over the decade, China is one of the fastest growing energy consumers in the world. They are now by far the largest CO2 emitter in the world. Um, you know, I think within a decade, they will surpass the U.S. as having put more CO2 in the atmosphere than any other country. So, you know, I think this is just a COVID blip. I don't think I, I don't see anything uh, slowing down in China on a, you know, on a long term basis. Um, you know, I, I think the world could do itself a lot of favors if they would figure out how to get China off of coal. You know, China burns more than half the world's coal. That is the biggest source of CO2 emissions in the world, the, the, all the coal that China burns. And, uh, you know, if we really want to rein in CO2 emissions, if you could just get China off coal, it would make a major, major dent. Well, and I think that that has um, definitely or it definitely is a problem because no one really seems to address that in the whole climate change discussion is, you know, these other countries and how they really have not taken climate change or not been taken to task on what is their proposed for the future of how they will cur curtail and curb their uh, energy consumption. Um, and that's something I guess that uh, until we start taking that on pretty seriously, I personally don't think that um, we're really taking on the real topic of climate change because, you know, we all live on one planet and uh, one major polluter um, is still causing problems for the world. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about oil demand uh, from OPEC plus uh, along with, um, I want an update on what you see is happening with Ukraine and Russia and the energy crisis that's happening in Europe. But we gotta take a quick break. You're listening to a new Patch Radio Show and we'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, 
advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. And we're back. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. Robert, before the break, we were discussing um, a global picture of energy and we got on the discussion of China and um, they are actually bringing on coal plants. Um, as we speak, they have not curtailed a, 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 their coal plant uh, initiative where they think they're bringing on a new coal plant. What is it? Once a month, uh, every month. Uh, and coal, as you said earlier, is, is, is really probably the most harmful to the environment. Um, do you, what do you think the solution is? We've got um, them not involved in the, the discussion of climate change. Every other country uh, has been, and they've actually, I think, taken a lot of, of um, heat as well as problems because of the fact that they are trying to change um, their consumption and also move into a greener way. So let's take, for example, uh, Europe, and they are having significant problems with a lot of their investment into solar and wind and not having enough energy for their population. Yet we have other countries like China that are continuing to bring on coal uh, facilities uh, every month to meet their demand, which is, of course, a dirtier way of uh, producing uh, or providing energy. Um, how are these things, to, how are these happening, these two things? You've got one country committed, you've got another country not and we know that we do have the discussion happening at a global level of, of how do we tackle the topic of climate change? What is the solution do you think we have here? What, what are we missing that one country can do this and the other country is, and, and we're following the path of Europe too. So are we going to have a problem with uh, energy and not having the lack of it because we're also doubling down in green energy? So on China, so to be fair to China, they're going along the path of all the developed countries. The developed countries developed on coal, and China's following that same path. The problem is none of the developed countries have, you know, over a billion people. And when you've got more than a billion people and you're developing on coal, you're emitting a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide. So what China needs to be doing, instead of building coal plants, they need to be building nuclear plants, they need to be building natural gas plants, and they need to be building out renewables. And, and they are doing that. They are building all of those. But the coal plants need to get displaced. And you know, if you just displace the coal plants with natural gas plants, uh, you'd make a tremendous dent in, in uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Over the last 15 years, I think it's still true that the US has the largest decrease in carbon dioxide uh, emissions of any country in the world. And the reason for that was we switched in mass from coal to natural gas as the fracking boom uh, opened up all this natural gas. And a lot of environmentalists say, oh, but you're still emitting CO2. Right, but natural gas emits about half the CO2 uh, per megawatt of energy production that coal does. So uh, that's very significant. So if you don't, I mean, you can't necessarily replace a big coal plant with a solar farm. I mean, that's a lot of capacity. It's, it's uh, you know, coal plant is firm power. Um, 
but you could with natural gas and you could, uh, you could supplement the natural gas with solar and with wind and displace it that way. And, uh, you know, the problem is coal is cheap and China is, uh, is, is kind of modernizing their society on, on cheap coal. And, you know, for the world's sake, we need them to do it with, uh, you know, nuclear power, natural gas and with renewables. And, um, you know, that's, that's the issue. And that's the really the key issue going forward is if the world uh, doesn't rein in emissions in the developing countries, we're not going to rein in emissions, period, because that is the that is the driver of the of the emissions is the developing countries. Correct. And aren't they the ones that are actually um, by the Paris Climate Accord not required to come into compliance for another 20 years down the road, whereas the United States is pretty much required to come into compliance right now? How does that happen when they are the largest contributor polluters on the planet, if you will? Because they, they make the argument, hey, our per capita emission is much lower than yours. We're trying to develop. We're, you develop this way. Why can't we develop this way? Um, and it's true. Our per capita emission is higher, but we have a lot fewer people. And people say, well, is that fair? We're asking China to rein in emissions when the average Chinese person already only uses half the energy we do. And I say, well, it matters how many people they have. I mean, it, it, it matters how much a country emits not just per capita, you know, imagine a country with one person who has huge per capita emissions. Is that significant versus a country with a billion people that has, you know, much lower per capita emissions than the one person? That country, what goes into the atmosphere is a function of all those people and their emissions, not just the per capita emissions. So if you are a country with a whole lot of people, your per capita emissions are going to have to be lower. And, and that's the problem with China, but that's the argument they make is, hey, you de you developed on coal and we're just going through the same thing that you went through and india's making that argument and so china is making promises they say well our co2 emissions will peak and start to come down in 2030 and that's how they keep uh, the world off their back they make promises that hey we can't do it overnight but you know we've got a plan well we're coming up to the end of um our show and i guess you know opec and iea have released their demand for 2022 they're close in their numbers, but they're really not saying the same thing. And one of the things that I love to ask guests who are comfortable in speculation, um, is OPEC and IEA their numbers for forecasting for 2022 more or less in line with what you're thinking? And for the consumer, where do you see gas prices um, as we're coming up you know, towards the end of summer and going uh, into fall, um, oil price, uh, Prices at the pump, excuse me, where do you see them falling? Do they kind of remain the same? Do they go higher or low, lower? Um, <clears throat> what are your thoughts? And how comfortable are you giving <laughs> your thoughts on what we will see at uh, price at the pump? So gasoline prices almost always decline going into the fall. And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, demand is lower because summer driving season is over. And we make a transition to winter gasoline. And winter gasoline is cheaper to produce and it is more abundant, primarily because we're able to put more butane into the gasoline. Uh, summer and winter gasoline, the difference is the vapor pressure. Because it's cooler in the winter, we can have a higher vapor pressure in the gasoline without it evaporating. And that's done by allowing more butane. Butane's cheap and plentiful. So almost always we see gasoline prices fall going into the fall. And so I'm comfortable saying, yes, I think gasoline prices will continue to decline. Now, there have been times when that didn't hold true. Hurricane Katrina, when it knocked out all those oil platforms, uh, you know, we saw a spike in, in uh, oil and gasoline prices then. If, you know, if you've got a busy hurricane season in the Gulf, you could see opposite trend. But most of the time, we see it declining. Now, OPEC, I haven't seen OPEC's uh, uh, prognosis for next year. 
but you know they're often self-serving. They they like to say, well, we don't see oil demand as high as what some others may see it, and therefore we're going to withhold production, and that's in their benefit because if if uh, demand is high and they forecast it low, then oil prices shoot higher and they make a lot of money. So uh, you know you always have to think about things when when OPEC is making forecasts. Um, you know, does this forecast benefit them? You know, they don't want to overproduce. They don't want to crash the price. They like $100 oil very much. And so, um, you know, they have a history of saying, we don't see any shortages, even when shortages are, are occurring. And even when uh, global inventories are low, uh, they're often slow to open up the taps. And, and they probably don't have a lot of spare capacity as it is to open up the taps. What about um, quickly the Russian factor? Does it play a, a role or not? in their speculation of what we'll see for the ending of 2022. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a big wild card. I mean, if, uh, if this quagmire in Ukraine continues and Russia is somewhat limited on their ability to put their oil out there, it does impact the market. If, for example, tomorrow everything was resolved and people started buying Russian oil again, I think we'd see the price mitigate some because you know Russia is still selling their oil to India and, and China, and I said they would, um, but their market is somewhat limited relative to where it was. Perfect. Well, Robert, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming in and talking to us about this uh, Inflation Reduction Act. We look forward to having you back on the show here in the near future. Thank you for joining us. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.